Well, good morning. It is so good to see you all this morning. My name is Pastor Jonathan, and whether you are a visitor or a regular attender or a member, I want you to know that you are welcome here this morning, and I am grateful that you have joined us here this morning at Mission Dorado Baptist Church. Now today, if you have not gathered it already, is a special day in the life of the church. This begins Palm Sunday, hence we have palm branches down at the beginning. It begins what we call Holy Week in the church. And this is the week that we recognize the final week of Jesus' work here on earth, beginning with the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and concluding with the resurrection on Easter Sunday, which is next Sunday. So for the next two weeks, uh, we will take a break from our First Peter series. And we will be walking through a two-week series entitled, Tell Me the Story of Jesus, where we will simply walk through the events of Holy Week breaking them down scene by scene and discovering the story of Jesus during Holy Week. Today, we will begin in the book of Matthew in chapter 21, looking at the events of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry and walking through the beginnings of Tuesday of Holy Week. Today, we'll discover through our text that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Jesus is the King of Kings. Now, that being said, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to the book of Matthew. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today, and today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that is fine. Uh, we should have some pew Bibles uh, in, in the chairs in front of you if you would like to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that is your gift. You can take it. You can write your name in it, and that is your gift from our church. It is now your Bible. Take it home with you. That being said, let's look at Matthew chapter 21, and I'll begin by reading verses 1 through 11. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now we are introduced to this scene with action. It says that they drew near, but who is they in this passage? Now, Jesus is traveling around and he's been doing ministry with his 12 disciples and they have been in Galilee teaching and they're on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And on their way, they've stopped in Jericho where we see Jesus heal a blind man. And then we see the familiar story where Jesus dined with the tax collector Zacchaeus who was brought to repentance. And by this time, Jesus and his disciples are not traveling alone to Jerusalem. No, by now, the large crowd of chapter 20 has become a huge crowd. 
And leaving Jericho with his disciples and the huge crowd following, Jesus begins the journey to Jerusalem. And as he approached Jerusalem, he also approached the end of his three years of earthly ministry. And as the crowd followed along with him to celebrate the Passover, little did they know that they were accompanying the Passover lamb himself. Now the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was about 17 miles long. And it rose in elevation about 3,000 feet. So it would be the difference from driving from Dallas all the way to here. And it passed through Bethany and nearby Bethpage, which was on the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives. And that offered a spectacular panoramic view of the area. It would be like when you go down to the Fort Davis State Park, the Davis Mountains, and you're looking down on the nearby town of Fort Davis to put it in perspective for it. They could see for a long ways. This is where they are. This is who they are with, and this is where our story picks up today, right outside of Jerusalem in a small town near Bethany called Bethpage. And then look at the end of verse 1 through verse 3. It says, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. But once they arrived there, there's a bizarre turn of events. Jesus tells two of his disciples to go into the village that is directly in front of them, and immediately they will find a donkey and a colt with her. This is bizarre because the animals were in another village. How did Jesus know that they would be there? How did Jesus know that they would be found immediately at the edge of the village? Then it's also bizarre that Jesus would say to them that the Lord needs them. Jesus had just walked 15 miles from Jericho to Bethpage. Surely he doesn't need a young donkey to ride for the last two miles. Jesus could have only known in his infinite knowledge and understanding of the things past, present, and future where the donkey was and where the, at that moment that they would be waiting to be found by his two disciples. Jesus also knew in his infinite wisdom that they would be questioned about taking the animals. And so he prepared them with an answer that would satisfy those who were keeping watch over them. Now, some have suggested that maybe this was a preordained password of sorts and that Jesus was familiar with the village and this was a preordained arrangement. And the truth is the text does not say or it does not give us any answers to these bizarre actions of the how. But the scriptures do give us an answer on the why the Lord needed them. Look at verses 4 through 5. It says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew in his gospel now takes time to explain that this was not just a bizarre string of events, but Jesus was indeed doing his heavenly Father's will and fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies even at this moment. In this way, it is true that he was in need of this donkey so that he could fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that we saw in Zechariah 9.9 that we read before our service began this morning. At this very moment... The prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 is being fulfilled where it was written some 500 years earlier. And it had been prophesied that the people of Jerusalem would proclaim the Messiah as their king as he was coming in the city mounted on a donkey. 
Surely the readers of this minor prophet 500 years earlier had thought that this was a misprint, that this was a mistake. The kings of their day rode in on white war horses, surrounded by mounted men and soldiers, and then those that resisted them were vanquished and killed or enslaved. Yet this king of kings was to ride in on an unridden colt, reserved for a king, as no one else would ride a king's animal. But this was not a horse. This was a donkey. This was unimaginable in their time. Why would a king come straddled over such a slow and dirty and undignified beast? This would be akin to the president of our day arriving into town, riding on a tricycle. This just doesn't make sense. When the king comes to town, the expectation is that he would ride proudly upon a battle horse at the head of a parade of decorated troops. Yet the prophet Zechariah envisioned a king who would ride into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. This is interesting to say the least. But he was a king like no other kings. Look at verses 6 through 7. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed him. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And now we find out that the disciples had done exactly what Jesus had directed him. They went and brought the donkey and its young colt, and they put their cloaks on the donkey, and Jesus sat on their cloaks on top of the young donkey. Five hundred years had passed from the time that Zechariah had written this prophecy. It's the same length of time from our day, from the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation. This is not a short amount of time. 500 years pass from Zechariah writing these words. And we see clearly in all four Gospels that Jesus asked for a young, unridden donkey. He was brought a colt and he sat on it. The Prince of Peace was ready for his arrival. Look at verses 8 through 9. It says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus begins to ride into the city. Most of the crowd spreads their garments on the road. Why were they doing this? This was an ancient custom that we see in 2 Kings chapter 9 where citizens would throw their garments on the road for the king to ride over, displaying their respect for him and their submission to his authority. This was their way of saying, we place ourselves at your feet even for you to walk over if necessary. This was a proclamation of his kingship. While you had some people spreading their garments on the road, yet there were others who were cutting palm branches from the trees to spread them on the road. We find out from John's gospel in chapter 12 that these were cut from palm trees. Jesus was completely surrounded by a huge crowd. Some were going before him, some were following out of him, after him, and each having their own expectations of what the Messiah would bring. While many were caught up with what we could explain as the frenzy of mob hysteria, they were fulfilling God's plan. While Jesus was entering the town mounted on a donkey, the crowd was shouting, Hosanna, which is a Hebrew expression, a cry for help that means save us. They also were shouting that Jesus was the son of David, which was a messianic title. They were crying for salvation from the Messiah. See, the crowd knew who Jesus was. 
And they were crying out for help from him. However, they didn't fully understand. And they didn't fully or truly believe what it is that they knew. They were right in knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David. They were right in knowing that he had come in the name of the Lord. But they were wrong in their understanding and belief about what sort of deliverer he was. They knew that he was a king, but they didn't understand the nature of his kingship or his kingdom. They thought that Jesus had come to deliver them from the Romans presently. And they didn't understand that he had not come to save them from the Romans, but to save them from the darkness of this world and to a new kingdom. To deliver them from their citizenship of the darkness and to a new citizenship in the light. While these shouts were heard and while they were meant, these were shouts from people who wanted Jesus on their own terms. They wanted a king who would follow their plans to destroy Rome, but not to destroy their favorite sins or not to destroy their empty religion. What they shouted this Palm Sunday would radically change from they shouted the coming Friday. Jesus was not there to deliver them on their terms. He was not there to allow them to remain in the darkness or to bring them earthly pleasures. He was there to make the kingdom of God known and to battle an enemy that many didn't even know that they had, their own sin. Look at verses 10 through 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We can picture this scene that has just occurred and think, Well, the whole town got it. Jesus is here. The Messiah has arrived. But Matthew's gospel gives us a unique vantage point of the triumphal entry. After the shouts had subsided and quieted and calmed, after Jesus had entered Jerusalem, there was still a question among the residents of the city who began asking, who is this man? And the response from the multitude was, this is the prophet Jesus They had just barely finished shouting and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David who came in the name of the Lord. However, when the mob mentality subsided, they didn't even really know who it was that Jesus was other than he was a prophet that came from Nazareth of Galilee. And there was this question, who is this man? We've seen it asked throughout the Gospels over and over, and we still continue to ask it today. The people Jesus had come to save only had sight and understanding of the kingdoms of this world, not the kingdom of heaven. And they were ready for him to be their earthly king. But as we will see in the coming days, they would not have him as their heavenly king. It's only Palm Sunday, and a lot can happen in a week. Act 2. It's Monday. At the dawn of another day... As the dawn of another day begins, we are introduced into a new scene of the Holy Week, beginning in chapter 21, verse 12, where Jesus enters the temple. Let's look at verses 12 through 17 of Matthew 21 now. It says this. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and the scribe saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant 
And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went to the city, to Bethany, and lodged there. Jesus enters the temple on Monday morning. And the place is abuzz with preparing for the Passover. The city would swell in population during this time so much that many had to stay outside of the city in Bethany or in Bethpage. And people are coming to the temple to buy animals for animal sacrifices because they didn't travel with them. They didn't travel with animals and they needed to purchase them. Jesus enters the temple and when he enters the temple, he sees all of the commerce that is occurring. And it says he drove out or he cast out all. It doesn't say some, it says all who were buying and those who were selling in the temple. How does he do this? We can picture Jesus walking slowly and calmly and his hair flowing gently in the wind. However, he drove them out by overturning the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling the pigeons. And I'm not sure how Jesus could have done this calmly. I can't picture how someone can turn over tables and drive people out being calmly. I believe that Jesus had a wave of righteous anger here. Remember, being angry is not a sin. However, for us, it can often lead us to sin, but not for Jesus. What were the money changers doing? Well, the money changers were exchanging currency for those who were arriving out of town. Much like when we travel to another country in our day, we have to take our dollars and exchange them for the local currency. Or when someone comes here, they have to exchange their currency for our dollars so that we can spend them in commerce here. That's what's occurring here. They had to have the correct type of currency and they had to have it in the precise amount so they could purchase animals for sacrifice at the temple. It was these tables that Jesus turned over. Well, why are people selling pigeons? That's a bizarre thing to read. Well, all of those who were traveling a long distance over the Roman world didn't want to travel with beasts and birds. And so it was necessary for them to be able to purchase animals for animal sacrifices since it wasn't practical to travel with them. However, this is occurring in the temple, and it was these chairs that Jesus overturned. And Jesus, through cleansing the temple here, is actually uh, fulfilling another prophecy from Zechariah 14.21, which says, There will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord. And while he's clearing the temple and while he's fulfilling this Zechariah passage, Jesus is also speaking Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7.11, saying that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The gospel of Mark adds that it was also to be a house of prayer for all nations. And while Jesus was overturning tables and seats and driving out all those who sold and bought in the temple, we may look at this and we may say, well, what was the specific instance that caused the Son of God to run these people out of the temple? What was too much? What crossed the line? While we're always tempted to ask what it is that crossed the line, the reality is, is there was not a specific instance that Jesus rejected here but rather the whole system of sacrificial worship which had developed into a big business inside of the temple. There were those who were in the business of exchanging money, and that was their livelihood. Now there were those who were raising pigeons to sell, and the entire atmosphere had turned into one of a commercial instead of an atmosphere of prayer, and Jesus was having none of it. Who is this 
man. Who is this man that drove people out of the temple? But this is fascinating. This is amazing. Notice what happens next. They came to him. It says certain people begin to come to him. And while we see some who are driven out, who are being run off, then there are those who come to Jesus. Those who have come for prayer, those who have come for healing. But all they find in the temple is a place of business and all they find is a place of commerce occurring in the house of the Lord. You can imagine these needy arriving at the temple and they say, where is the help? Where's the prayer? Where's someone who cares? But all they find is someone to sell them an overpriced pigeon or to tax them on its changing currency. But then suddenly they hear someone speaking loudly what they are feeling and what they are thinking internally. But he doesn't just speak. No, then he begins to act and he overturns tables and chairs and he's running people off who are selling the high priced animals and taxing the exchange of money. And they hear someone saying what you shouldn't say, but he gets it. And they see someone doing what you shouldn't do, but he gets it. He understands. He understands that there are those in need of prayer and healing within the temple. Who is this man? It's once again the question that is asked. Who is this man that speaks with authority? Who is this man who claims for the temple to be his house through quoting scripture? Who is this man? So they come to him because they need saving from their blindness. They need healing from being lame or the inability to walk. And this man who speaks with authority also hears with compassion and also heals with the power of God. Who is this man? Who is this man is the question that continues to echo among all those who have come to him. Those who have not been run off. Those who have noticed him. The lame are healed and the blind can see. And once again the cries begin. I imagine softly at first. Hosanna. He saves. Son of David. He is Messiah. And then the children who had heard the proclamation earlier and once again begin to hear the proclamation of who this man is display their childlike faith and they begin to cry out even louder, Hosanna! He saves! Son of David! He is Messiah! But then those that ran the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, They saw these things and they were angry. They were annoyed. Who did this man think he was to run off those who were simply making a wage in the temple? Who did this man think he was to allow these children to call him these names? Did he hear what they were crying? Hosanna, son of David, Messiah? How could he allow them to think he was the Messiah? And that he was there to save them. However, the lame were not confused. They could now walk. The blind were not confused. They could now see. And the children were not confused. Jesus himself quoted Psalm 8 too. God uses the mouths of babies and infants to speak the truth. 
These children are speaking plainly about what they have seen, what they have witnessed, and what they have heard. The lame walked, the blind saw, the children believed, and Messiah is here. But those who organized and ran the temple only saw a loss of control and felt anger. Who is this man? The evidence is piling up. And the lame and the blind and the children are not confused. It's only Monday and Sunday is coming. Act three, it's Tuesday. Early Tuesday morning, our story begins with a bit of a flashback that we only understand from reading all of the Gospels, and in particular, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Let's read verses 18 through 22 right now of chapter 21. It says this, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come to you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And then we know from Mark, this is Tuesday, And then when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. On Monday morning, on the way to the temple, the cleanse it that we've just read about, Jesus is hungry. Now, surely his host that he was staying with would have fixed him breakfast. So we're uncertain why he's hungry, but we know he's hungry. And so he stops at a fig tree, but he sees nothing but leaves. Now, I don't raise figs, but my understanding of a fig tree is that a fig tree of this nature would produce evidence of fruit even before it produces leaves. But Jesus found a fig tree that was bearing no fruit. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. Matthew's gospel tells us that the fig tree withered immediately, while Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more detail and tells us that the next day they saw it had withered away to its roots. And regardless of whether this was immediately or whether it occurred over a 24-hour period, the point is this is a rapid decline for a tree. Even if the tree was diseased or killed with salt, it would have taken many weeks or months to die. However, this occurred immediately and completely overnight. What was the point of this? Why did Jesus kill a fig tree? On Tuesday, as they're returning into town, surely the minds of his disciples and his followers were on the scenes of the previous day. They had just gone into the temple. They had just seen a place of commerce. They had just seen people Jesus drive everyone that was selling and buying out of the temple. And it was a place that was spiritually dead. There were leaves. There was the outward appearance of life being displayed. Animals were being sacrificed. The right words were being used, but yet there was no fruit occurring in the temple. And this fig tree and its barrenness is the imagery of Israel's barrenness as well, put on display for his followers to see. Jesus had driven out those who were fruitless in the temple and those who were in need had come to him. Think about that. Surely for those who were blind... Or surely for those who were lame. It required faith to come to this man who was probably not walking calmly. He was walking angry and he was turning over tables and chairs and causing waves with the leaders of the temple. Surely it required faith to come to this man. 
if the blind and the lame's faith was put on display? What was the outcome of their faith? They were healed. They could see. They could walk. And Jesus then tells his disciples, if you have faith and do not doubt, there is unimaginable power available to you through my name. Through my name, you have mountain-moving faith. And there was a mountain that needed moving. A mountain that was only being temporarily avoided through the Passover, but now was able to be moved completely with the Lamb of God in their midst. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith, God has provided something better for us. But Jesus' disciples didn't understand clearly. Even with the echoes of the children still ringing in their ear. Hosanna, He saves. Son of David, He is Messiah. They were all still figuring out the answer to the question of, Who is this man? And it's only Tuesday, but Sunday's coming. Now the last week of Jesus' life, is amazing. Today we have just seen a glimpse of what occurred in only three days of his last eight days here on earth in human form. But I wonder for today, what is it that we can learn and apply from the text that we have studied today? And I'd like us to just real briefly look at two observations from today. Observation number one, Jesus is always in control. Looking at our text today, we saw that from the moment that Jesus entered the picture, he was in control. He was in control of where the donkey would be found. He was in control of fulfilling the prophecies. He was in control of the fig tree. And he was even in control in his anger as he overturned the tables and the seats in the temple. However, notice that there are two groups that come out of Jesus' control. First, there are those that submit to him and rest in his control. Second, there are those who are indignant, who are angry and upset at their loss of control. And today, I want you to know that nothing has changed. Jesus is still in control. God is still on his throne, and he is still sovereign over all things. And the challenge is still the same for us today. Will we submit to and rest in his control Or will we become angry at our loss of perceived control? Put even more simply, will you rest in Jesus or will you not? Psalm 37 says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently on him. The rest that this psalm is talking about is not talking about physical rest that involves sitting on the couch or taking a break from work and relaxing or napping or sleeping. And yes, those are good things, but this psalm is talking about resting in the Lord as resting from submitting to confusion or submitting to worry or stress or useless human effort and all that comes from us trying to be Lord and in control instead of recognizing that God is Lord and is in control of all things. Does this mean that we do nothing? Absolutely not. God's sovereignty is not an excuse uh, for human inactivity. God's sovereignty or control over all things is not an excuse for our human inactivity. But rest means that we don't have to attempt to earn an identity through our work or our efforts. But we can rest in the identity that God has given us. Rest means that we can find rest in the storms of life. 
by not having to bail the water out of a sinking ship ourselves, but we can simply go to Jesus, ask for help, and trust him to calm the winds and the waves at the appropriate time. Rest means that we're not worried about building a perfect kingdom here because we know that a perfect kingdom is at hand and that the kingdom of God is available to us all. Rest means that we can fully rely on God with our emotions because we know that He is in control and He is God. Children of God, Christians, hear the psalmist and rest in the Lord and wait patiently on Him. Nothing has changed. Jesus is still as in control today as He was on Palm Sunday as he was on the following Monday and the following Tuesday. Jesus is still in control. God is still on his throne, and he is still sovereign over all things. And the question for us is not who is in control. The question is, will we rest in the control and the lordship of Christ alone today? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you tired today? Do you need rest today? Christian, rest in Christ alone and his lordship and his sovereignty, or you will grow weary. Don't look for your job to satisfy. Don't look for your relationship to satisfy. Don't look for your family to satisfy. Don't look for wealth to satisfy, but rest in Christ alone. Rest in the lordship of Christ alone today. Our second observation that we see today is this. The question that we all must answer is, who is this man? We saw throughout the story today and throughout the Gospels, the lingering question of who is this man? However, the question is not really who is he? The question is, who is he to you? Is he your Lord or is he not? We just talked about how we can rest in the lordship of Jesus Christ. But if he is not your Lord, then you cannot rest in him. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Put simply, it means that he is the ruler of your life, the boss of your life, the master of your whole life. And by definition, Jesus cannot be a Lord over a part of your life, but he must be given control of your entire life. Everything that you do is seeking to bring him honor instead of seeking to satisfy your own self. Why would you want to do this? Because Jesus alone satisfies. Jesus alone satisfies. Every other thing that we seek for satisfaction will always let us down. It will always disappoint us. And it will always not meet our expectations. In a relationship, the other person will always let us down because they are human In a job, we will always be let down after the newness or the pride of position wears off. In wealth, we will always find out that no matter how much we have, it's never enough. The only thing that can truly satisfy is knowing that we have been made right in our sinfulness before the God who created us and loves us. How can we do this? Today, if you simply cry out in belief, Exactly what these children were crying out. Jesus, save me. Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. And you will be saved. Here's the truth. There is a God who loves you. And he created you. 
Everything that we can see and we can touch and we can feel, He created, including you. God is holy. He's set apart. There's nothing like Him or anyone like Him. He's never done anything wrong, nor can He be associated with anything that has ever been done wrong. Here's the truth. All of us have done something wrong. All of us are sinful. We've all lied or stolen or cheated or lusted. Everyone has. We've all done something that goes against God's holiness. And therefore, this creates a problem because God and His holiness and His separateness cannot be associated with what is sinful, including us. And therefore, as sinful humans, we are separated in this life and in the next from the God who created us and the God who loves us. And that is really, really bad news. But Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming and it changes everything. God loves you and he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, so that he could make a way for you to be with him for all of eternity in a real place called heaven. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a baby. And he was fully God and he was fully man. And I don't fully understand it, but I fully believe it. And he lived a perfect sinless life here on earth. But yet what we're going to see this coming Sunday is he went to a cross and he died for your sins. And that three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave on Easter Sunday. So that we can all stand here. And we can proclaim that if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we confess him as Lord, if we say that he is Lord, if we turn from our sins and we follow him, then we can say we are forgiven and saved. And we're no longer a slave to the darkness, but now we're in this new kingdom of the light. Have you done this today? Jesus is in control. Will you submit to his control and cry out, He is Lord, or will you not? Our big idea for today is this. Jesus is sovereign over all things, at all times, so we can rest in Him. I'll say that again. Jesus is sovereign over all things, at all times, so we can rest in Him. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believer, I don't know where you were when you walked in this place, but I pray that God's word has caused you to not be distracted by the darkness, but to focus on his light. Believer, let's gaze at his goodness. Let's gaze at his lordship. Let's gaze at his light. Let's be restored of the joy of our salvation as we remember how good our Savior is, how faithful our Savior is, and how in control our Savior is. Maybe today you're here and you need to come to this altar and you need to cry out that God would remind you that He is sovereign over all things. Maybe you need to come out and you need to cry, God, would you let me rest in you alone? God, I've been anxious. I've been worried. I've been consumed with the darkness. Would you allow me to be consumed with your light and your goodness once again? Sunday's coming. and We know what happens on Easter Sunday. Maybe you're in here and you've never experienced God's forgiveness and you've never called on him for salvation. If not, today is the day of salvation. 
In a moment when we sing a song and I come down front, that's the moment that you can come down front and I can help you cry out in belief, Jesus, you are Lord. You are the Lord of my life and I submit to you. Save me. Would you do that today? Maybe today you need to come forward for baptism. We can schedule that. You need to cry out before your entire church giving testimony Jesus is the Lord of my life, and I'm giving testimony of it through baptism. Maybe you're looking for a new church home. Whatever it is, in this moment, would you do business with the Lord? I'll pray, and you come. Church, I love you so much. Let's pray.